uh, keeping up with the news this week? Sort of. Even, uh, even the Prime Minister called it a, a nightmare, and he's the one who's supposed to be in charge of it all. Does it leave you, as it must admit, it does me, with the feeling we've fa- fallen down some rabbit hole and uh, we're in some peculiar dream scripted by Lewis Carroll? It's rather like that, isn't it? It's rather like, to you, if you're familiar with the Alice in Wonderland, there's what's called a caucus race where everybody runs round in a circle. Um, at the end, everybody wins, but that's just the same as saying nobody wins, isn't it? Everybody gets a meaningless prize. Well, perhaps uh, your literary taste may be run more to Jonathan Swift and Gulliver's Travels. Do you remember there that vicious wars that were fought between the, the little Indians and the big Indians? And in case you don't know the story and don't know what that means, what they were fighting over was which is the best end to open an egg. Those who uh, wanted to open it at the little end and those who wanted to open it at the big end. And these nations have been at war for a long time just over this question. Well, perhaps you're familiar with the writings maybe of George Orwell, who had a rather darker vision perhaps, a less humorous vision at least. Big Brother aided by some rather fancy information technology. In 1984, this is the book 1984, which I have read, by the way. Somebody was saying on the, on the radio this afternoon, that's one of the bad books that people claim to have read when, when they really haven't. But I did read it many, many years ago, I have to say. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but uh, with, with some rather fancy information technology... The government in 1984 not only controls what people are allowed to say, but even what people are allowed to think. Now, that may have been seen, thought as a rather absurd thing at the time, mightn't it? But are we not now coming close to that? You can have attitudes as long as they're the right attitudes, the politically correct attitudes. But woe betide you if you disagree with them. And of course, George Orwell's other famous book is Animal Farm, where the uh, farmyard animals rebel against the farmer and set up their own state. But it all goes horribly wrong if you read the book. And the slogan goes, well, it starts with four legs good, two legs bad. Very key on the slogans. But eventually it lands up as all animals are equal, but some animals are more equal than others. And aren't we very much now in that nightmare? All the electorate is equal, but some of them are more equal than others. At least some claim they have more right to be heard than others. Well, I think we'll stick with Lewis Carroll. Uh, He's a fellow mathematician, a mathematician by training, as you know. And Lewis Carroll, Charles Dodgson, of course, was a mathematician. So I'll stick with Lewis Carroll. In the words of Lewis Carroll, it's perfectly possible to believe six impossible things before breakfast. That's actually from Alice in Wonderland, if you're wondering. But uh, actually, I'm going to try and describe this nightmare that we've fallen into. 
not as Alice in Wonderland, but as that of Alice through the looking glass. The looking glass world looks very much like the everyday world, only it's back to front and nothing is quite what it seems. And that's what you get when you start seeing the meaning of life in terms of carpentry and building services, which is what these uh, people in our, um, stu- in our passage this evening were doing. They, they understood carpentry, they understood what Joseph di- did, they understood what Jesus had been doing a few years back. But wisdom, and these signs, they couldn't get their head around that at all. At first sight, it looks very much like the ordinary world, and as I said, it's back to front, and the more you get into it, the weirder it seems to be. I'm not going to give details of the, of the book Alice in Wonderland. It's worth reading if you ever get the chance, but uh, I will mention one or two things later on of the, the uh, features. Sorry, I mean Alice through the looking glass. So I'd like to look at our passage this evening in... Um, terms of, uh, well, the two parts of it, it obviously divides fairly obviously into two parts. First of all, the Nazarenes' reaction to when Jesus came to talk to them, came back to them, came home. And then that last verse, which I'd like to describe to you, it's a bit fanciful, but bear with me if you will. I'd like to describe to you as as the the marvellous world of looking glass. But why do I call it marvellous? Well, actually, because this is more or less how Jesus described, or at least how Mark tells us that Jesus saw it. In uh, Mark 6, 5 and 6, which is the um, verse in Mark of this same story, Mark writes the following, Jesus that could there do no mighty work except that he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them, and he marvelled because of their unbelief. That's the King James Version, but I've read from that because it seems to actually be the best translation. Jesus found their unbelief something marvellous. Jesus could heal the sick, Jesus spent time in the desert debating with the, with the um, devil. He could heal the sick, he could feed the crowd. Feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes didn't faze him at all. He could go toe-to-toe with the intellectual elite in debate, as we read in the previous chapter. He could do all these things, as it says, without being phased. And there are marvels aplenty in these passages, aren't there? Things that we would perhaps find marvellous. But what is it that Jesus himself finds marvellous? Well, according to Mark, the thing he found marvellous, the thing that was almost impossible to get your head round, almost impossible to understand and to see, was that his fellow townsfolk, who have known him all his life, and with all that they've seen, and all that they've heard, and all that they've been told, and all their history as godly Jews, 
they still do not believe. Isn't that a truly marvellous thing? Of course, we don't find it marvellous, do we? Because we find unbelief quite easy. But Jesus said this is a a marvellous thing. It's almost impossible to credit. And it says, tells us, this passage tells us remarkably, it even affected his behaviour to some extent. It says he was unable to do mighty works there except for a few healings. I'm not going to go into the theological issues of exactly how that worked. I think that would not be a particularly useful thing to do. But certainly, it changed the way that Jesus himself reacted to the crowd and the place he was in. So let's look at this in a bit more detail. We all know the proverb, don't we? Familiarity breeds contempt. Similar sayings apparently were current in the world in the time of Jesus. Fairly obvious thing to, to say in one sense. And yet, actually, when you think about it, it expresses something rather deeper and darker than at first appears. Matthew has just recounted Jesus' teaching on the separation at the end of the age, the stories of the wheat and tares and so on. But now he describes a more immediate separation. Of course, it seems the kingdom of heaven is near, that's what Jesus has been preaching, that the kingdom of heaven is near, and yet its natural citizens are all booking their tickets out. Why was this? And if those, even those people could not believe, perhaps it's understandable in one sense that we, people can't believe today, but we have the testimony and we have the words of Jesus. And so Jesus says, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. So why is it that people don't believe today? Well, there's a sort of ambiguity in the human spirit. We desire the new, and yet we also fear change and the unknown. That's perhaps why the Brexit debate is so visceral. It's only a political question in one sense, but some people are really fed up with the status quo, but others fear what change might bring. In fact, truth told, but both of us do both those things most of the time. We are discontent with the status quo, but which way to the promised land? We want a leader, don't we? We want someone who can show us the way, who can take us. In fact, we want a Moses. And yet, we won't follow them just as the people had difficulty following Moses at the time, we expect our politicians to lead, don't we? But then when they do, we accuse them of being elitist and out of touch with the people. And so what do we find? Well, we find that in their elitist way, our politicians behave in exactly the same petty manner as the rest of us. They don't describe any of the wisdom we might want from our political elite. These Nazarenes that we're reading about here had the same problem. John the Baptist preached that the kingdom is near. But John is dead. 
So how do we get to the kingdom then? How will, who will show us the way? And you'll find for a job like that there's no shortage of applicants. And there certainly were at the time. There were any number of leaders, religious leaders, political leaders at the time of Jesus, all with their own agenda and all promising to lead the people into the promised land. But are any of them qualified? We want wisdom from our political elite, we want wisdom from our religious elite as well, don't we? And yet later, Jesus would accuse them all of being blind guides. And part of the problem, I think, seems to be a sense of unreality. That's the problem that these Nazarenes had, really. After his preaching tour of the Galilee region, Jesus had come home to Nazareth, his hometown. But what kind of reception did he get? Well, Nazareth is kind of down-to-earth northern town. Perhaps it has a certain mutual antipathy to those big city folk in Jerusalem. They're of down-to-earth sort of people. And carpentry is something they understand. That's something solid and real. But that's... The trouble with that is they can't see beyond it. A few years ago, Jesus fixed my front door and he made a very good job of it. But now, who is this guy? They might be saying, say, who are you and what have you done with the real Jesus? Might be what they're thinking, perhaps. Who is this man who we thought we knew well? The carpenter's son. But it seems that we didn't know him at all. And on the other hand, of course, if they did decide they wanted some religious stuff, they knew where to look. And you certainly don't look in Nazareth. That's just not where, they, where it's happening. That's not where the religious leaders are gathering and discussing. That happens in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where the teachers are. And after all, that is where John the Baptist came from. John at least had the right pedigree. He came from Jerusalem and he was the, his father was a priest. But Jesus, Jesus is the son of a carpenter. And he's come from Nazareth. We know Nazareth, we live there. And there's a sense of, un, sense of unreality grips them. They just can't get their hand, head around it. To the Pharisees, as we were reading, say, a few chapters or so earlier, to the Pharisees, Jesus was an uneducated northerner and probably in league with the devil as well. The friends and neighbours here have the opposite issue. Jesus is too much a man of the people. John was the son of a priest, but he dabbled in politics and got his head cut off. Even Moses had some political training. But these neighbours' ancestors had found it difficult even to follow Moses. But of course, it's an excuse really, because when you preach the gospel, whatever you do is wrong. 
later the Apostle Paul would come along. And he had all the right pedigree. He had all the right degrees and qualifications. He'd studied with all the best teachers. Did they treat him any better? No, they tried to do away with him. They were just as offended at him as they were at Jesus. Some people are just never satisfied. And um, Jesus himself commented on this perverseness of unbelief, didn't he? So this is uh, Matthew 11. Jesus says, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. So we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then the sting in the tail. But wisdom is proved right by our actions. Note these last few words. In the Bible, wisdom is usually feminine, interestingly enough. I won't go into that in detail, but certainly in Proverbs, wisdom is given a feminine persona, and Jesus seems to have to say the same thing here. And yet, it is Christ who is our wisdom. So Job had asked the right question all those years before, hadn't he? Where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? We won't listen to all these highfalutin teachers from Jerusalem. So one of our own comes to us. And we won't listen to him either. The gospel can be proclaimed in different ways, can't it? It can be sophisticated and philosophical as, uh, as uh, Paul did when he was in Athens teaching to all those academics. Or it can be down to earth and practical as when Jesus spoke to the woman at the well and dealt with the issues that she had immediately before her. Paul said indeed that the gospel preacher should be all things to all men in order to save some. That's 1 Corinthians 9.22. Whatever style you adapt though, or whatever style you adopt, sorry, you can be pretty sure that the world will make it an excuse to reject your message. But those Nazarenes actually got half the way, didn't they? They actually were asking the right question. They did ask the question, where did this wisdom come from? Where is that? It's first, I've just got to find the verse. Um, 17. No, sorry, it's not 57. It's uh, 50. Too small for my... 54. Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers, they asked? They did start by asking the right question, but perhaps lacking the torments that Job had been through and too much immersed in the everyday of life, they just couldn't arrive at the right answer. 
life for those friends and neighbours wasn't perfect. But it wasn't all that bad either, was it? They did need somebody competent to fix their front door. And they found somebody who could fix their front door for them. But when they'd found it, they shut it in the face of any ideas coming in. So where did Jesus' power and wisdom come from? That was certainly the right question. Like the Pharisees earlier, the people couldn't deny that something extraordinary was happening. This was the buzz of the whole district. But the Pharisees, you remember, attributed Jesus' power to Beelzebub, the devil. The people of Nazareth found a different way to avoid the implications of Jesus' call to repent and believe. Theirs was a down-to-earth, we might say a grounded community. Carpentry they understood. Common sense they understood. Wisdom was something other people did. And Jesus just didn't seem to have the right qualifications. And anyway, what about his claim to be a prophet? Well, a prophet, by definition, is somebody sent by God, isn't he? So therefore, obviously, he has to come from somewhere else, otherwise he can't be sent. That's probably what they were thinking. That's what Jesus said, isn't it? prophet is not without honour except in his own country. And so what do we read? Matthew records that Jesus' neighbours took offence at him. The Greek word is scandalizo, from which we obviously get our word scandal, but the literal meaning is that they tripped up. His background was an impediment, an obstacle, which caused them to fall over. They just couldn't get their head round it. But what was it that tripped them up? They didn't have anything against carpenters. In fact, it was the prophet thing that was offensive to them. It was the message that they rejected. And other people use much the same arguments today. Older generations learned about Christianity at school, but then they didn't learn it from people who really believed it, and so it didn't make much sense to them. In fact, I always think, say to people who... Um, lament the removal of religious, sort of Christian religious instructions from schools is that what we used to get, I mean I grew up in this, what you used to get was just enough religion to inoculate you against the real thing. Probably better off without it at all than have it taught by people who don't really believe it. Younger people of course have just been told unreservedly that God is made as a made up idea and the Bible is just fairy tales and that no reasonable person has believed this stuff since the 18th century. Quite wrong, of course, but that's what people claim. So, there is one sense in which the modern 21st century Westerner is different and yet not different from those Nazarene villagers. Their unbelief And the unbelief today is grounded in the everyday experience of life and that comfortable worldview of the Nazarene villagers. It's grounded in the everyday experience of life and your views of your Facebook friends where you just have a circle of people who think the same as you do. 
Not only does it refuse to think outside of the box, it's confident that the box is all there is. It claims to be realistic, yet what do we find? It becomes increasingly unhinged from reality. And you'll find people will believe all sorts of bizarre things. Fake news is everywhere, isn't it? People believe the most bizarre claims without even stopping to think, does this even make sense? Let alone, is it true? And instead of reality, you get rhetoric. Instead of a sensible debate over Brexit or anything else, you get slogans and petitions and demonstrations and mudslinging and, well, people just saying what I say is right without in any sense testing the ideas that they have or actually seriously debating on them and trying to make any progress of understanding. This is not realism. It's the looking glass world. And you get prejudice and bigotry become terms of abuse rather than terms of argument. Anybody, all sorts of people get called bigots nowadays, but not with any consideration of what the word actually means. And anybody who disagreed with you is accused of prejudice, aren't they? You're accused of something phobia, which means an irrational fear. What does that mean then? It says that the thing you're disagreeing about, you can't possibly have any rational objection to it. It's just an irrational fear, so you must be, must be prejudiced. And that's how the debate is conducted. This is not realism. And words just become emptied of content and certainly divorced from their normal meaning and their common sense. Just try and give a definition of marriage or gender now. You can't do it. You'll end up writing a complicated academic paper trying to make sense of it and usually failing miserably and talking complete nonsense. This isn't realism. This definition of gender that we have now is completely divorced from reality. It's just a made-up thing. It means whatever you want it to. And that's why I say that this is the looking-glass world. Because what is it we find in the looking-glass world? Well, Humpty Dumpty says it exactly. When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, Alice in the books of course always represents the voice of reason and common sense. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. The question is, said Humpty Dumpty, which is to be master, that's all. He got it exactly right, didn't he? Don't argue with the egg. He got it exactly right. That's exactly what people say nowadays. 
gender, sexuality, marriage, Brexit. It can mean whatever you want it to. Brexit is Brexit. Well, what's that say? That's saying nothing, isn't it? <laughs> Literally, it's not saying anything. Words can mean whatever we want them to because we think that we are the masters of the universe and we can make something true just by asserting it. Actually, mathematicians got into trouble trying to do that about a century ago, but the rest of the world doesn't seem to have caught up yet. Marriage, gender, free speech, tolerance. Now there's a word that means whatever you want it to. There's a very good book by Don Carson called The Intolerance of Tolerance. It's well worth reading. Now it shows that in the name of political correctness and the claim to tolerance, we've actually come to a society that's far less tolerant than we had 50 years ago. And the pigs had got it right in Animal Farm as well, hadn't they? All animals are equal, but of course we're more equal than the rest of you. I mean, we even do it ourselves, don't we? I mean, even the liberal elite. We talk about the liberal elite. And that means what we want it to, of course. We can't say we're even ourselves necessarily uh, immune from that. But if it means anything, it means this, that people who claim to make things right, who have the wisdom, but what their wisdom comes from, not from the father of wisdom, but who comes from their own minds and hearts, People who acclaim, in fact, that they are more equal than the rest of us. <clears throat> There's something else about the looking glass, too. The Red Queen explains this, if I recall correctly. That you have to run very fast to stay in the same place. Things change very quickly. And they change very quickly because things are always getting redefined. Faith, according to Richard Dawkins, means believing things with no evidence or even in spite of the evidence. And so he devotes several bestsellers to debunking that idea of faith. He doesn't actually do it very well. He usually ends up contradicting himself. But uh, that's what he's aiming at. I suppose if that's what faith is, then he's right. It does need debunking. But that's not what I mean by faith. And it's certainly not what Jesus meant by faith either. The problem that these neighbours had was not lack of evidence. It tells us that the scripture tells us that they themselves were amazed in verse 54. They were amazed by Jesus. But actually it's a different word. It's not the same Greek word. The word here that these people were the way in which these people were amazed is the word is ekpleso, and it means shocked. It's as if somebody had come and hit them and they'd knocked them over. As if they'd been hit by a blow. They saw the evidence, but they just couldn't handle it. It shattered their comfortable world. And of course, we don't have that immediate experience that they had 
But we have the words of Jesus and the testimony of the apostles. And the evidence is there if we can accept it. And yet, in a sense, we can sympathise with those neighbours, can't we? Perhaps being able to fix a door is the meaning of life. Perhaps this is as good as it gets. This isn't a new idea, of course. The ancient world had its own big Endians and little Endians. They were called the Epicureans and Stoics. And by the time of Jesus, they'd been arguing for 300 years or so. And you still get much the same arguments now. They both agreed that life had no real meaning. So what they had found to argue about was what's the best way to deal with that? Is it best just to drown your sorrows, hold endless parties and forget about it? Eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's what the Epicureans thought. And the Stoics, on the other hand, thought that we have to rise above it. We have to make our own meaning. We have to become strong. And of course, in modern times, Nietzsche, Stoic to the core, revived that idea, didn't he? God is dead, so man is dead. Man must reinvent himself as a superman. Nietzsche, as it were, is the, the patron saint of the existentialist and the postmoderns. But it's a fantasy. We can't reinvent ourselves as Superman. And the more we try, the more mess we get into, as it's becoming increasingly clear. Superman is a fantasy. He lives in the looking-glass world. And so God is dead becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? What you see is what you get. Like King Ahaz 700 years earlier, these Nazarites would see no sign, and so they got no sign. Of course, they refused to believe what's from what they had. They got no sign. Jesus didn't do much there, it tells us. So welcome to the looking glass world, the world in which nothing is what it's quite what it seems. The world, world where words mean whatever I want them to, where you have to run fast just to stay in the same place. And again, if you're familiar with the book, you'll know that the looking glass world actually is one gigantic game of chess. It's a, it's a game. It's a game where people play, but it doesn't really mean anything. The point of it is just to get to the other side of the board and become a queen. It's a weird place, certainly, and it has its attractions. But it's not really a good place to live, is it? In Carol's story, Alice came back through the looking glass to the real world. And we need to do the same. But as those Nazarenes found, it's not an easy thing to do. 
we keep being dragged back into the illusion. We can't quite cope with it. We can't quite get our head around it. And so we say, well, perhaps carpentry is the meaning of life. Perhaps there's no more to it than that. And yet, the evidence had been there before them. And they chose to ignore it. They they would see no sign, so they did see no sign. Verse 58. Well, Alice, through the looking glass, was based on a real girl, but of course, Alice, through the looking glass, is a fictional character. She's just as fictional as Superman, in fact. So she can't lead us out of the looking glass world. But we do have a guide. We do have a pioneer who has been to check out the route. Hebrews 12, verse 2. We do have a Moses. And that pioneer is Jesus. If only we could see him for what he was and not say, oh, he's just another carpenter. He's just another purveyor of snake oil. Just another second-rate prophet. Don't let's make the mistake that Nazarenes did. Let's see clearly who Jesus is. And let's follow him back to the real world. Not, I say, by ignoring the evidence as they did, but in fact by studying the evidence, studying the testimony of what Jesus said, what the apostles said, and finding that it does make sense. It is possible to believe. It is possible to see who Jesus is. So let's not make the mistakes the Nazarenes did. Jesus is the one who shows us the way.